Our Lord, we are thankful that we have an unshakable God. We thank you that you will never leave us and never forsake us, that you are the sovereign king in the entire universe. Lord, we look at the world around us, and there are so many things that cause concern and anxiety and worry and, and sadness and heartache, Lord. Things that we face in our own day-to-day lives, things that may even happen in this next week that we can't yet foresee but will uh, shake us in various ways. Things that we see in the news that may be on the other side of the world or other part of the country, but Lord, these things also can be very concerning. But we're thankful, Lord, that you are a faithful and a sovereign and a loving God, that you, through your son Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection, that you've already defeated death. You've already defeated sin and evil. And Lord, we thank you for that victory. And I pray that you will be comforting those who are grieving and struggling, whether it's here in in our midst here this morning with various challenges that we face. Lord, I thank you that your grace is always sufficient. I pray that each one of us, through the challenges that we face, will see and experience the sufficiency of your grace. And Lord, for those who are grieving, I think of those in France right now. I think of um, people still down in Dallas um, with the slain police officers. I think of others... um, and just all throughout the world, all throughout our country, even in our community, who grieve and struggle, Lord, I pray that, that you will be their comfort in this time. That you will be an ever-present help in times of trouble. And that you will be working through these challenging circumstances to bring a revival and an awakening that turns people to yourself. For you are the one who gives hope. And you are the one who gives life. And so now as we turn to Scripture, we pray that your word will, be, word will be living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, that you will penetrate our hearts with it and motivate us to not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word who put your calling and your word into practice in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in recent weeks, we have seen many troubling events throughout the world. I mean, it's really hard to miss them. I think of this last week of those very haunting, uh, that haunting terrorist attack in Nice, France. I think of how just 24 hours later there is this attempted coup in Turkey to overthrow the Turkish government. I think of how here on the home front, that over the last few weeks, our country has been dealing with a lot of racial tension that's really been there for a long time, but it's boiled up over the surface in recent weeks. I think of police officers about how they are under fire, both figuratively and at times literally. I think of the political situation in the U.S., which, to say the least, is a bit messy. And we can look at all these things and and experience trepidation, anxiety, concern, maybe a little bit of confusion. We can feel kind of powerless when we look at these things and wonder, you know what? What can I really do? I'm just one person. I don't even know where I'd start, even if I did have the power to do something. At the same time, I'm I'm reminded of a famous statement. This is the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and good women to do nothing. Now, as Christians, when we look at the ills of our society, we are not called to passive indifference. We are called through the power of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel to step up and to overcome evil with good. 
in our society. And you know what? It can be very daunting. It can still feel like, you know what? I don't know what we can really do. It's easier said than done. Yet, when we look, for instance, at the book of Esther, we see that God really can and does work through ordinary people to cause great change in the face of, of struggles, of pain, of injustice, of brokenness. And God wants to do the same thing today that he did 2,500 years ago through Esther. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 5. We are in a series right now that is walking through Esther. I want to give just a, a, a visual illustration of where we've been so far in the book of Esther. Esther uh, took place in the Persian Empire about 2,500 years ago. And near the beginning of the book, you have King Xerxes who's throwing this very extravagant banquet for all of his royal officials. Now, when Xerxes and his men uh, were all drunk, Xerxes came up with this tremendous idea, he thought, of having his queen come in and entertain them by showing off her beauty. Now, he thought this was a great idea. She did not like it quite as much. So she said, no, I am not coming. Now, the king did not like that response. And being a man of practically unlimited power in the empire, he banished her from his presence. He said, you are no longer the queen. And so that began a process of seeking a new queen, a process that looked very much like the TV show, The Bachelor. Beautiful young women were gathered from throughout the empire. They were brought to the king. They each got one night with the king in order to impress him to the degree that he would choose them to be the next queen of Persia. After this whole process, the king chose a Jewish woman named Esther, although at the time he did not yet know that she was a Jew. Now fast forward a few years, there's this man named Haman, and Haman had this encounter with a Jewish man named Mordecai. Mordecai happened to be Esther's cousin, although that was not necessarily widespread knowledge at that point. But, but in some manner, Mordecai offended Haman. Haman was very angry. He blew the whole thing way, way out of proportion, and he convinced the king to issue an edict that all the Jews throughout the whole empire should be annihilated. Sounds like an overreaction. It is, but that is what happened. And here's Mordecai. He's seeing this whole thing. All the Jews throughout the whole empire are entirely dismayed, as you can imagine. And Mordecai then gets word to his cousin Esther, who is the queen. She's had a very quiet queendom so far. He convinces her that she is the woman whom God has called to rescue the Jews. He says, who knows, but that you've been called to your royal position for such a time as this. And so she chooses then, in the pivotal moment of her life, she chooses to set aside her personal safety and her comfort and to step up and take action. And that is where we are going to pick up the story today. Esther chapter 5, I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I begin reading in verse 1. It says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, 
What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, and it will be given you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to, the, to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, and it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. So we're going to be looking actually at the entirety of Esther chapter 5, but we're beginning with the first half, which shows Esther as a cunning beauty. Now, we don't use the term cunning very often in our culture today, but it basically means someone who's coming up with a plan to achieve a certain goal, but through an indirect route. Now, verse 1 begins, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. So the third day, Esther had, had become convinced by Mordecai that she needed to step up and address this, this decree against the Jews. And so in preparation, she called for a fast among the Jews of the city of Susa. She and her royal attendants fasted as well, and this was a way to petition God to intervene on their behalf, to give her success as she's seeking to, to change this decree against the Jews. Now the third day has come, and it's go time for her, and it's time to approach the king. But this approach to the king is very dangerous. She said back in chapter 4, verse 11, she said, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. So, so Esther is basically saying this is an excuse for why she can't go. And on top of that, she says, hey, it's been 30 days since I was there. He doesn't really want to see me there anyway. And, you, and that's, this is why she said, when she finally decided to take action, this is why she said, well, if I perish, I perish. And this is not just an exaggeration. It's not just an overreaction. It's not empty rhetoric of, you know what, this is really dangerous, and I might even die. She's being real about this. There is ancient art artwork from the Persian Empire that's been excavated that shows a Persian king sitting on his throne. He's holding his scepter in his hand, and he's surrounded by other officials there uh, around his throne. And one of the people standing there by his throne in this ancient artwork is a soldier holding an axe. Now, what is that soldier doing there holding an axe? He's not there to chop wood in case the, the king gets cold. He's holding an axe there to quickly take off the head of anyone who the king doesn't want to see. That's why he is there. This is not empty rhetoric at all. It is very dangerous, but it is what the queen has to do if she wants to intervene on behalf of the Jews. It's the course of action that she has to take. And this points to the fact that for us as well, there are times where we have to take a step that may make us uncomfortable or that might seem a bit risky in some manner or another. 
Maybe it's that we need to take a stand for something that's quite unpopular. Maybe it's that we need to have a difficult conversation with someone that we don't want to have, but we need to have it for some reason. God doesn't necessarily call us to to easy, comfortable lives. Following him at times requires risks. It requires stepping out of our comfort zone. And for Esther, that is what she is doing. You can imagine her trepidation as she is there approaching the king's throne room. I mean, I can just put myself in her place. I'd be thinking, oh, man, is this really happening? I can't believe that I'm actually going to do this. I'd probably have a cold sweat going on. I'd struggle to catch my breath. Um, You know, you'd be very anxious about what's going to happen next. And she gets there. She gets to the sight line of the king's throne, and she stops. And she waits. But then the tension is broken pretty quickly when the king sees her. And and I imagine a smile coming across the king's face because it says that the king was pleased with her. The king was pleased with her. This was the exact same phrase that was used back in Esther chapter 2 after the king's night with Esther. He was so pleased with her that he made her the queen. It's the same phrase here that he was pleased with her. And then he extended that royal golden scepter. She stepped forward and touched it, signifying that she was safe. And so what we see here is a picture of the king extending grace to Queen Esther. Now we have to remember that she could not presume upon her safety simply because she was the queen. Remember what happened to Queen Vashti when he refused, or when she refused just to come before the, the king to entertain them with her beauty? She was banished. And that's a pretty tame type of consequence. So, so the queen, Queen Esther, could not presume that she was going to be safe or exempt from the king's wrath simply because she was the queen. But she's been given grace, not only to live, but also in, in what the king said next. He said, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, and it will be given to you. It will be given to you. Now, when he says, even up to half the kingdom, it's not to be taken literally. But what that's doing, it's a common phrase by kings. It's, kings say that when they want to respond generously to a request, they will be coming. He is predisposed to be kind to her, to be gracious and generous with her. Now, now Queen Esther, um, you may be thinking, okay. Now's your time. Lay the request out there. He's already said he's going to give you anything, you anything that you ask for. Just lay it out there, Queen Esther. What does she do? She says, well, king, how about if you come over to my house tonight for dinner? And we hear that, and we're like, come on. You had an open door. You had a green light. Just ask. Just, just lay it out there. Be bold. Be courageous. And all you can come up with, Esther, is why don't you come to dinner tonight? That's what she does. I think we have to give her the benefit of the doubt here because she has a plan that she is working out. I mean, the plan is evident in the fact that she not only invited the king, but she also invited Haman, the very man who sponsored that decree to annihilate the Jews. She has a plan that she is working out. Now, we may still ask, okay, but she had a green light. Why didn't she just take it right then and just lay out the request when the king already said that he was going to give her whatever she wanted? Why didn't she just take a more direct approach? We have to understand that, that Queen Esther, she is beautiful. 
But her beauty, there's much more to her than just beauty. She's very wise. She's very cunning. She has a goal to save the Jews, but she's going out at it through indirect means because she recognizes that the direct path of just laying it out there is probably not going to yield good results. Let me share with you four reasons why this direct path, if she just wanted to lay it right out there right at the beginning, was not a good course of action. One reason is because this decree was already an irreversible law. There's something kind of unique back in the Persian Empire. I think it has to do with the pride and arrogance of the empire. But it's that any decree that is issued is irrevocable. It cannot be repealed. And so what the Queen Esther was essentially going to be asking him to do was to repeal an unrepealable law. And that would be very difficult for him to do and incredibly embarrassing because he'd already given the stamp of approval on annihilating the Jews. And for him to take that back would be embarrassing before the whole empire. On top of that, the second reason why this direct approach may not be the greatest is that it would cost the king a lot financially. Because Haman had promised that if the king allowed the annihilation of all these Jews, Haman would pay 10,000 talents, which is a unit of money, into the king's treasury. 10,000 talents is a lot of money. It's a lot more than just $10,000. 10,000 talents is more than half the annual tax revenue from the entire empire. And you may wonder, where is he going to get that kind of money? That's a bit beside the point. I think he's probably planning to plunder the Jews and pay it that way. But this is a lot of money that the king would be missing out on if he did not allow the Jews to be annihilated. Now, third point, why that direct route may not be the wisest, having to do with Haman, is that Haman had recently been exalted by the king to be the second in command of the entire empire. He was a very powerful man. And for, for the queen to come in and try to, try to confront him directly and to go directly against him was a very precarious type of uh, proposition there. So odds are good she was not going to win a direct confrontation with Haman because he was so incredibly powerful and influential there in the kingdom. Now, a fourth reason why this direct approach wasn't great had more to do with Esther and the secret that she had been keeping. Remember, she was a Jew. She had not told anyone that she was a Jew, though. Even her husband, the king, for five years they had been married, and he did not know that she was a Jew, and he had unknowingly passed a decree that would wipe out all the Jewish people. Think about how embarrassing that would be for him to suddenly find out after all these years of marriage, after making her the queen, that she was a Jew. And this is a secret that he had, she had been hiding from him for that long. This is a society that is very much based on honor and shame. This would be incredibly shameful. He would uh, really lose face in the sight of everyone in his kingdom if this secret was suddenly divulged in a direct manner. And so the queen, uh, as she was wanting to save the Jewish people, she recognizes this is an incredibly complex and sensitive situation. There are times when we need to act directly. But there are also a lot of times, especially when the situation is very complex or very sensitive, that more tact and wisdom and patience is called for. And that is what Esther is doing. And what she is, is essentially doing here is hooking in the king. She's drawing him in. 
They're sitting here having this discussion. Uh, they, they have the banquet. They're drinking the wine. Once again, the king asks her, Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, and it will be granted. She says, My petition and my request is this. But then she doesn't really lay it out yet. She's hooking the king. You want to know my petition and my request? Come back tomorrow night. Then I'll tell you. She's drawing him in. And you can imagine the king's curiosity at this point. Now, you might be thinking, well, he'd, he'd probably getting, be getting really frustrated. Queen, you're wasting my time. But we have to remember he's a very egocentric man. He loves women. Here he has before him a breathtakingly beautiful woman who is giving him her full attention. She's kind of playing hard to get, which she probably likes. And she's flattering him along the way. She says, King, if you regard me with favor, and if it pleases you to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. She is serving them. She's flattering them. She's really making it appear that she's leaving control in his hands. He's in full control. He can refuse. She says, if you take any pleasure in me, will you come for another banquet? Then I'll tell you what my request is. Now, she's being very sly, very cunning here, because by getting him to agree to come to the second banquet, she's also getting him to say, yes, I will definitely fulfill whatever request you make. And this is the third time that he has said this. Twice he already said, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you up to half the kingdom. And here, she makes it a condition to come to that banquet. If it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then come. So by coming to that banquet the next day, the king is already saying, you know what? I'm going to fulfill your request. Three times he said he's going to do that. And so she's putting him in a position where if he backs out, if he refuses to honor her request, it's going to make him look really, really, really bad. This is the cunning nature of what she is doing here. In this plan, it's kind of like fishing. I mean, I kind of use that term, hooking the king. Imagine fishing. You know that on the end of your line is a huge fish, a trophy fish, something you might mount up there on the wall. But you also know that when you are fighting a big fish, when you're fishing, the best thing is not to try to pull him in as quickly as you can because what happens then? You either break the line or you rip the hook out of his mouth and you've lost him. What's better in those times, is to be patient, to let the fish wear itself out, to slowly reel it in, get it in the right position in order to land it safely. And that is essentially what Queen Esther has done here. She's laying in place this plan that's going to pull the king in in order to put him in the position where he will be ready to grant her request wholeheartedly. It takes incredible wisdom, incredible tact, incredible patience, because this is an incredibly complex, sensitive situation. Now, we see here this picture of this cunning beauty, but there's a second part of the story as well. Remember, I quoted earlier, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men and women to do nothing. Esther is doing something here. And she's doing something in the face of great evil. And there's an evil man, Haman, behind all the evil that's about to be uh, unleashed against the Jews. I want to turn now to the rest of chapter 5, which talks about this evil man. 
picking up in verse 9, it says, Haman went out that day, so it's after the banquet, he went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, Haman was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. She has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. So we saw in the first half of the chapter, Esther, a cunning beauty. Here in the second half of the chapter, we see Haman, an arrogant beast. Now we see here that Haman is driven by a thirst for public prestige. This is an idol for him. Now we don't necessarily think that much in terms of idolatry in today's culture, but it's an idol because it's where he's looking for a sense of significance and identity. He, he wants to feel significant. He wants other people around him to see him as significant. Now, not much drives uh, proud people crazy as not getting the recognition they think they deserve. Now, the reason he was so joyful when he was leaving the banquet is that he was, was getting great public recognition. I mean, he was the choice guest of the king and queen at their private banquet. He's feeling great about himself. But then... He sees Mordecai still in his royal position there at the king's gate. And Mordecai refuses to stand up or to bow down before him or to give him any sort of respect or reverence. And that turns Haman's joy into rage. Because again, it threatened his personal idol of being driven by a thirst for public prestige. When he's at the banquet, the idol is being fed. When, when Mordecai refuses to, to bow before him, the idol is being offended, and it leads to rage. And again, like I said, there is not much that drives a proud person cra- as crazy as when they are not recognized in the way that they think they ought to be. Now, a humble person doesn't care that much if they get recognition or praise from others. But pride causes someone to put themselves up on a pedestal And say, you know what? I need the recognition. I deserve the recognition. It it should be coming to me. I mean, picture it this way. Back to a different type of fish analogy. I mean, you've heard the idea of a big fish in a small pond or big fish in a big pond. Haman sees himself as a big fish. In many ways, he is. He's the second in command of the kingdom. But the thing is, he needs to be treated as a big fish. Whether he's in a small pond or big pond, he needs to be treated as a big fish. And that is idolatry. That is arrogance. That is pride. He believes that he needs to be treated differently than everyone else. 
Because again, he has this idol that's being driven by public prestige. Now, amazingly, he restrains himself from lashing out in his rage against Mordecai, at least immediately. Instead, he goes home and tries to soothe his bruised ego by boasting to everyone he gathers there. He gathers his wife, gathers some friends, and starts telling them about all the great things that he is and does. He says, hey, look how much money I have. Look at all my sons. And, and he goes on from there. But you think, they already know all this stuff. I mean, his wife has not forgotten how many sons they have together. But he feels like he needs to stroke his ego because it feels good. It helps him um, just to feel much better about himself after his ego's been bruised. But this is what pride does. But pride, it leaves you very unsatisfied. He says, you know what? All this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see this Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. I mean, he has so many other things going for him. But this one man, this one man, Mordecai, refuses to bow to him, and that drives him crazy. And that in itself is a sign of pride. Because a humble person would probably just be able to let that offense go. Say, you know what? It's not a big deal. I'm not going to blow it out of proportion. But you have Haman, proud. He can't let it go. And so he comes up with this idea. And one of the things we have to understand is that pride not only eats us up and leaves us always dissatisfied, it makes us very dangerous to those around us as well. And he's pictured here as a beast bent on destruction. He asks his wife and his friends, okay, what should I do here? How should I respond? And they say, you know what? Kill Mordecai. Do it now. Don't wait for the annihilation of the Jews. Do it now. And do it by setting up this pole and impale him on it. It's kind of like an ancient form, an earlier form of crucifixion. Impale him on a pole. So Haman decides, okay, I'm going to do this. If you don't like someone, just kill him. That's kind of his mentality here, and he has the power to do it, I suppose. So he sets up this pole. It says it's 50 cubits high. That's about the equivalent of nearly 75 feet in today's culture. A 75-foot pole. Our, our, our steeple out here is only about 10 feet taller than that. So this is an incredibly tall pole. He certainly doesn't need a pole that tall in order to impale Mordecai. But why does he want it? He's, well, one, he's trying to humiliate Mordecai. But more than that, he's putting it up as a show of really his arrogance and his pride that he can do this, so he will do it. So you see that, that, that Haman is being driven by a thirst for public prestige. He's a beast bent on destruction. And so here we have a cunning beauty and an arrogant beast. I mean, they're coming at a showdown here, which will unfold over the next few weeks in this, in, in, as Esther unfolds. But I want to come back to the idea that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men or good women to do nothing. Here in this passage, we have a uh, picture of Esther doing something. I mean, granted, it's not the direct approach. There are times in our lives where more of a direct approach of, of, of confronting an issue is, is valuable. I mean, if you have an issue with someone, a personal conflict with them, a disagreement with them, by all means, typically the best uh, approach is a direct approach. Just go to them humbly, directly, in person, and address it. There are other times where we just need to take a stand, make a decision, let the chips fall where they may. But when the issue is very complex or very sensitive, 
The best course of action is one of, of taking a step back, being patient, uh, being wise, asking, okay, what's the best course of action? And many times that is not necessarily the direct route, but we should still be taking action nonetheless. Now, last week we talked about this idea of for such a time as this, that that certainly applied to Esther. But I think it also applies to us as well. God has put us in, in a certain place, in a certain time, in, in certain neighborhoods, workplaces, families, friends, situations for such a time as this. Last week we talked about how one of the reasons God's put us in the place we are is to represent Christ there, to point people to the gospel. But I think it's also important to recognize that there are other things going on in our society that we are there for such a time as this as well. What are the social ills around us? What are the needs of our community? What are the needs of the people around us that we are there for such a time as this to help meet those needs? Are there issues at our workplace that we can be a catalyst in addressing those issues? Even if it's a little bit uncomfortable, oftentimes then the direct approach, I mean, may not be the wisest approach. We need to use wisdom. We need to, to give forethought into, okay, what's the best way to address this? Because if you just go right in with guns blaring, I mean, metaphorically speaking, of course, and, and, and you make people just really angry all over the place, odds are good you're not going to yield the best results right away. So how can, you, um, how can you really bring people along? How can you help open up people's eyes to realities that they need to be open to? And this is where wisdom and tact comes in. But we have to remember that we are called to represent Christ and to stand against the evils of our society, to, to stand up for what is right and what is good and what is biblical, but to do it in a wise and gracious and humble manner. So I look around at our society and ask, okay, what are the social ills that we can address? I think of here at Freedom's how, I mean, I'm so happy and excited about what God has been doing through Freedom's for many, many years, addressing the orphan crisis around the world, and even the foster care issues here in our communities, how we have many people who are involved in caring for children in need through foster care and through adoption. That's something I celebrate. I celebrate the fact that in Ozaki County, there are Christians stepping up to address the growing drug problem, especially with heroin. That is great. We need to do these types of things all the more. I mean, I look on a broader scale. I think of just what's been going on in the last couple of weeks, especially with the racial issues, and realizing that here in Ozaki County, we are in many ways relatively insulated from the depth of the racial tensions that are in our country. But just because we are kind of insulated from them does not mean that we should be indifferent towards them. I think of back how when, when I was on a three-month mission trip uh, to inner city Chicago, my eyes were really opened to the realities of, of racial injustice and oppression, and just the history of things that I wasn't aware of. I mean, I had a, a very good friend growing up who was black. I was in a community that didn't have much ethnic diversity. And I didn't realize for the first 20-some years of my life all the, all the issues racially that go on. But working for three months in inner city of Chicago opened my eyes to these realities in the deep, long, complex, hard history. It's not something that can be solved just like that. I wish it could be. I look at the issues and I'm honestly like, I don't know exactly where to start. I don't know what can fully resolve this apart from the power of God intervening. Yet at the same time, 
I'm convinced that we as Christians cannot sit on the sidelines when we look at tough issues going on around us. I mean, back to this racial issue, my eyes were open as I worked there to, um, I mean, to the whole history. I mean, going back even, go back to uh, how just 160 years ago there was slavery here in the U.S. And a lot of the, um, especially black people who came to the U.S., they didn't come on their own choice. They came on slave ships by force. Just 50, 60 years ago, we still have forced segregation here in the United States through the Jim Crow laws. Just because you repeal those laws and you don't have official legal separation anymore, segregation, it doesn't mean that the ramifications that have been building for decades or centuries are instantly going to disappear. One of the things my eyes were open to in Chicago was how with, um, with a lot of these neighborhoods, they'd experienced white flight. In the 1970s, the main community I was working in, Roseland, in southern Chicago, early 70s, it had been a predominantly Caucasian community. A few African-American families moved in. Then came white flight, something that's repeated over and over and over throughout communities and cities around America. And over the course of just about five years, that community went from almost all Caucasian to where it became 99% non-white. You don't think that that leaves residue of tension? It most certainly does. And with um, the Caucasians who'd been established there, with, with them leaving, also went the jobs. And you get this vicious cycle growing in those neighborhoods, a vicious cycle of unemployment, of teenage pregnancy, of dependence on welfare, of, of violence, of, of trying to figure out how to make your way through, and, and you're idolizing then um, the drug dealers, and you need a gang in order to protect yourself. It's this very vicious cycle. I mean, that's just inner city, and that doesn't apply to all racial issues. But I think a first step for us is to have our eyes open, to, to be educated. I mean, if we are around people of other ethnicities, just ask questions, listen to what is their experience. Because if you're like me and, and you're in the majority culture, the, the culture that's experienced the, the privilege here in America for, for centuries, our eyes are blind to the realities around us. So the first step in addressing any sort of society type of issue is to learn, to be educated, but then not to be indifferent, but to recognize we can make a difference. So it starts small. I mean, even if we aren't, don't have a platform to affect global or even national issues on a global or national level, we can still make a difference in our sphere of influence. You never know how the ripple effects will continue to bear fruit. So we are called to step up and to represent Christ. If you want to study more on this, I encourage you, read Isaiah chapter 58. Go home, write that down. Read Isaiah 58. It's a great picture of God's call to address the ills of society, to, to correct injustices and oppression. But we have hope that God is already active in this world. I think of John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We are called to let God work through us, but God's already at work. And this can give us hope. He's already defeated sin and evil and oppression, all that through Jesus Christ. That can give us great hope. We are called to be ambassadors of Christ, helping to enforce that victory. And we look forward to that day when Jesus will return to set up his kingdom once and for all. Now, when we look at the book of Esther, 
Esther is a hero, but she is not the hero. The hero in the book of Esther, as in the whole Bible, as in world history, is God. Even in Esther, she's been using this very cunning plan in order to save the Jews. But it wasn't just the cunning plan by itself that would save the Jews. It was God working through that. God working through Mordecai's unwillingness to bow before Haman. Working through Haman's arrogance that, that God was working through all these things in order to accomplish his sovereign purposes of delivering the Jews. In the book of Esther, we don't see the name of God appear anywhere. But it's very clear that even when we, when we can't see him, he is there and he is active. And this should give us confidence as we are living our lives in a very messy, complex world, that should give us confidence to represent Christ and to make those hard decisions at times, things that make us uncomfortable, at times that feel risky, to step up and to represent Christ in his kingdom. I want to close with 1 Peter 2, verse 12, where we are called to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. On the day he visits us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves reconciliation. Thank you that you have reconciled us with yourself through Christ. And Lord, I pray that each one of us will trust fully in Christ, receiving him as our Lord and our Savior, submitting ourselves fully to him through faith, not depending on our own good works to earn favor in his sight. In your sight, Lord, but to, to depend fully on what Christ has accomplished on the cross, paying our death penalty. So, Lord, we thank you that you love reconciliation. We thank you that you have called us as your sons and daughters to be ambassadors of reconciliation in the world around us. And, Lord, I pray that we will not sit on the sidelines being indifferent, but like Esther, like so many other Christians who've gone before us, that we will have the courage and the humility and the wisdom to step up and to represent you and to help in the process of seeing your kingdom come and your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.